right, good morning. You good? Good morning. Doing good? 32 out there today. Man, isn't that nice? I'm so waiting for the bugs to die. I just pray to God, give me like a week of 28. The air is clean. There's no gnats. The mosquitoes go away. In Jesus' name. Hmm. All right. Uh, hey, it is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. And on this weekend, every year for us as a church, we take time to pray for two things. It's also Sanctity of Life weekend. Uh, we pray for both of those things being things that uh, we want to be true of us as a church. We want two big things to be true. Uh, that for us as a church, we would lay hold of the truths in the scriptures that talk about life being sacred and precious. From the unborn to the elderly to the disabled, uh, that we would be a church uh, that would honor life at whatever stage and whatever season it is as precious and given from God for his purposes. That's what we acknowledge. Uh, number two, we pray that our church uh, in a city with a vast amount of broken uh, racial history would be a place where the family of God and the truths of Ephesians chapter two, where Jesus has torn down the dividing wall in his flesh and in his body made new, uh, one new man and has brought peace, that that would be the truth uh, that is lived and experienced here at Citadel Square, that no matter with the ethnic background, no matter the religious background, no matter uh, the ways in which our culture has a tendency to stratis stratify the haves and the have-nots, the ins and the outs, that those things would be broken here in this place, and that we would be a church that would testify that in Jesus, all men, all women, from every kind of background, from every kind of ethnicity, are brought into the new family of God where there is no distinction. What Paul says in the book of Galatians, neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, but all are what? You forgot? It's one. All are one in Christ Jesus. So that's what I'm going to pray here today, that those two things would be specifically and particularly true for us as a church, all right? Let's pray together, and then we'll get into what we're going to look at here in our worry series. Father in heaven, we come to you acknowledging that the truth of your word guides our affections. It guides our convictions. And Father, we pray here today uh, that is Sanctity of Life Sunday and a Sunday that remembers the work in the civil rights era of Martin Luther King Jr., then in this place, life would be precious. Regardless of ethnicity or background or rich or poor or haves or have-nots or male or female, that life for us here in this place would be precious. That we would acknowledge that you are the author of life and that you give life. So, Father, would we respect the sanctity of life in the womb and all the way to the end-of-life issues that many in our congregation are even considering? Father, that, that we would be the place that uh, holds to the truth of your word in those things, that we would also be a place where the uh, people from all walks of life might walk in here and experience the aroma of Christ that has made us a new family of God where there is no distinction, where we reject favoritism and ethnic pride and prejudice and bigotry and those things that would cause these divisions that uh, are anathema and are demonic when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, in this season, in this time, in this place, would you uh, answer these prayers with your will, that we would pray as a body, uh, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So reorder our affections in those things as we live 
in this culture and wrestle with issues that for many of us feel too big and unwieldy to be able to uh, make sense of. We pray that your word would guide us, would inform our hearts, would help us to model the truth of Jesus who loves all people. And Father, in this place, that we would love one another, and that would be the testimony to a watching world, that how can Jesus bring together people from all different walks of life into the same place around the truth of your word, and that they would love one another, defer to one another, consider one another as more important than themselves. So for all of that, Father, we pray that you would do that here. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, grab your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4. Last week we spent time in Psalm 131. I hope that was an encouragement to you. I made you list all your worries on a piece of paper, and that was annoying because uh, you actually saw the things that you were worried about, right? You can usually keep them in your head, but when I make you write them down, now you, you feel embarrassed and a little bit sad that these are the things that I'm worried about. And we ended our time saying that there is hope in the Lord. The command of Psalm 131 verse 3 says, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So what I wanted you to do was take that list of worries and put next to it one big word, and that was hope. Well, we had David deal with some temptations in his heart. He talked about his heart not being lifted up. Uh, he talked about uh, him refusing to grapple with things that were too great and too marvelous for him. And what we did last week was essentially draw the lines on the field. Uh, we wanted to know what are we dealing with? Where are we dealing with worry? And we said that uh, we deal with worry in our hearts, in our minds and hearts, that those are the places on the inside of us where we have a tendency to wrestle with worry. So what I want to do today is uh, move from understanding where the, the battle is going to be fought, understanding the field of play, as it were. And today, what I want to do is give you uh, some preparation. You and I know, listen, in 2021, there are going to be some things coming that you are going to be tempted to worry about. Would you agree? That we're only, what week is it? Week three? We're only week three into 2021. I guarantee you that there will be something that happens for you in 2021 that, where you will face the temptation to worry. That temperature in your heart will start to rise and the, the hamster wheel in your brain will start to spin and you will face that temptation to worry. So what I want to do today is begin, the next four weeks are going to be really practical. They aren't high and marvelous things that Paul gives us to do like uh, that, boy, I don't know how to handle worry and these things that Paul gives us are too hard. They're real basic. They're kind of the, uh, the run, pass, catch, throw, you know, basics, the rudiments uh, of how we're going to deal with worry. So that you can think of today and this morning as spring training. How do you prepare for the temptations to worry that you know are coming? What are the things that, uh, that you can do to exercise those muscles, to work on that, that weak hand, to be able to be prepared for game day when it shows up? Have I exhausted the sports illustration enough? You with me? Do you understand where we are? It's January, spring training hasn't happened yet, so I thought, all right, spring training illustration, this will be great. But I, I want us to recognize that, that for, if you came in this morning worrying, 
or you felt last week, Steve, you exposed all my worries and I'm still worrying. I, I, this is important for you. And if you came in and you go, life's pretty good. I don't have a, a, a really uh, thing that I'm worried about that's really eating my lunch. Then this is important for you too. So we're going to see something from the life of the Apostle Paul. Over the next four weeks, I'm just going to spend time picking apart about five verses here in Philippians chapter 4 that's going to help us prepare for worry, all right? So you can think about, like I said, this is spring training, and we'll get into this together, all right? Uh, Philippians chapter 4, did you find it? Have you all found Say yes if you found it. All right, good. Worry is you're starting to just not talk. You're all on the inside. I want to break that in our church so we can, we can start talking about it. Let's, let's pray one more time. Ask God for his grace as we look in this text here together. Father in heaven, for those of us who come have busy hearts and busy minds, maybe even from this morning, from something that's going to happen tomorrow that they're thinking about and praying about where they're distracted. Uh, Father, for these few minutes that we gather together and look at your word, I pray that you would give us peace that your spirit would calm fretful and worrisome and anxious hearts, that we would be able to see clearly just for a moment that you would still the troubled waters in our hearts to bring peace here for a few minutes, that we might be encouraged and strengthened to know how to face this temptation that is so common to so many of us. So, Father, strengthen us here this morning. Give us your grace. Guide us in your truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4. Uh, you know, I started last week talking to you about uh, David. And you remember we, we talked about David's life. Uh, David was on the run. David uh, faced kings who wanted to throw spears at him. He faced giants. He faced uh, friends who were murdered. He, he had this life. He had marital problems. Uh, he had this life that was filled with reasons to worry. Uh, well, I'm going to give you another individual here in the book of Philippians who is filled with reasons in his life to worry. The book of Philippians uh, is a really short book. It's a very positive book. The tone of Philippians is really warm. This is a church that partnered with Paul in his gospel ministry. They, they sent gifts and messengers to him to minister to his needs while he was in prison. It is a prison epistle. Uh, one of the ways that God had to, has to slow Paul down is to imprison him and to make him write letters to churches because he's lost his freedom. Uh, he's facing a time and a situation where uh, no matter who you are, I think you and I would agree that if you've been imprisoned, uh, life has not gone the way that you planned it to go. That Paul had lots of ministry ambitions to fulfill in his life. And what God has to do is, is chain Paul down to be able to get Paul to begin to write these letters to these churches. Uh, the, Philippians is a book you can read probably in 25 minutes. Four quick chapters, real up. It, it deals with the mind of Christ. And of all Paul's letters... Uh, it talks about the mind of Christ, the perspective that Christians ought to have. It talks about uh, rejoicing, though, more than any of all of his letters. I believe it's in every single chapter. There's some reference to the response that Paul has to his situation. And the response that he has to his situation is joy. It's the counsel that he gives to us. So, just like we looked at last week, how we saw in Psalm 131 that David counseled us 
to lead our hearts. And I got several messages this week from, uh, from many of you here who, who looked at Psalm 131 and recognized, boy, Steve, I have been living my Christian life passively. I am recognizing now the responsibility. I may have lots of reasons to worry, but I am recognizing the responsibility I have for my heart. Well, we're going to see something similar here as Paul counsels us toward joy. All right, so let's, let me tell you how this text is going to break down. We're going to look at like one, four, five, and like half of six. I'm not even going to talk about anxiety and worry yet. I'll do that next week. Uh, but all of what Paul's going to say prepares you for that. Here's how the text is going to break down. Real easy, three C's, because I'm a preacher, and that's what I have to do to help you remember. Uh, one is a command. Paul's going to start with a command. Number two, Paul's going to talk about the community. He's going to talk about the people who are around you and I. And number three, he's going to give us a comfort. So you got that? You got the command, you got the community, and you've got comfort. All right, let's take a look at the command. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice. Now, if I were to ask you to make a list, you made a list of your worries last week, I, let's make a list of the things that bring us joy. Could you, that's a little bit of an easier list to make, isn't it? That's a more fun list to make. You can mentally click off a variety of things that bring you joy, but if you do that, the quick thing that you're going to recognize about a list like that is the passive nature of the ordering of circumstances out here that brings a response in here. You with me? That no matter what it is, relational peace, vocational success, educational success, you could have a list of things. Our finding a spouse, having the baby, getting the new place that we need. All of those things out here that you would say, those things bring me joy. And that you and I have a default in our hearts that we look to circumstances to dictate the response of our hearts. Would you agree? that a lot of times if you're going to talk to somebody about worry, about fear, about fretting, they are going to list not things on the inside, they're going to list things on the outside. So if you uh, have taken English classes or you remember second, third, or fourth grade English, wherever they teach this, you would recognize that Paul begins this sentence not with a subject, which is implied, but with a verb. And it's not a passive verb. It's not have joy, it's not receive joy, it's you rejoice. It's also an imperative verb, which means Paul starts similarly to where we ended last week. I have calmed and quieted my soul. And we said between verse 1 of Psalm 131 and verse 2 was all this practical stuff that we needed we're going to get to the calm and quiet heart and give you some handles as to how we live this out. But where Paul begins is with commanding you and I to rejoice. Now, if you are feeling anxious even this morning, if you have come in and you feel fretful, that command feels a little awkward, doesn't it? Because you brought in all of these worries and all of these concerns and all of these anxieties and this list of things where, Steve, you told me to have hope last week, but I still feel like I'm worried. And I want to show you in the book of Philippians how Paul is dealing with his circumstances. And Paul is going to look at his circumstances and he is going to choose to rejoice. 
He's going to model for us how we ought to lead our hearts. And he's not going to do it by shutting his eyes to circumstances. He's not just going to close his eyes and plug his ears and go, all I'm going to do is rejoice. Paul is going to look with incredibly honest eyes at what he's dealing with and where he is. And in fact, the whole church that he writes to understands and sees what Paul is dealing with. So keep your finger in Philippians 4 and go back with me to Philippians chapter 1. So I want you to, show, to see this because Paul is going to model what he commands. He's not inexperienced in dealing with his heart. This is important. He's not uh, telling you, do as I say, not as I do. Before he gets to Philippians chapter 4, he has Philippians chapter 1. I went to seminary. I learned that. That Philippians chapter 1 precedes Philippians chapter 4. Are you with me? So watch what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, for Paul to say that, the Philippian church must be saying, Paul, it looks like your ministry is over. It looks like you're in prison. It looks like you've got no hope of continuing to do the thing that you're so passionate about doing. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I want you to to look at my situation with a different perspective. I want you to look at my imprisonment and my restrictions upon my, what he's about to talk about is persecutions. And I want you to know it really has served to advance the gospel. Look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. There's a purpose behind the situation that I'm in, the circumstances that I am living in has a purpose that it is for Christ. Paul will say in other places in his writings in the book of Colossians that all things were made through him and are for him. So Paul is able to observe his circumstances and, and somehow see through them in such a way that he understands that God is doing something in this situation, okay? Verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Paul does not care the motive of the preacher, Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for. You see the so that terms that Paul has used? Verse uh, 13, so that it's become known uh, that everything is for Christ. Here I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfless ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I what? I rejoice. And he says the same thing. Watch how he continues. Yes, and I will rejoice. It's the same thing he's about to say in Philippians chapter 4 to the church. So Paul's saying, I'm leading my heart. There are circumstances that I'm not in control of, but that Jesus is in control of. There are circumstances around me that are restricting me and persecuting me and putting me in a difficult situation, but I recognize that my imprisonment is not random. It's got a purpose. It's for what Jesus wants to do. I will rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. 
As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. My imprisonment is for Christ. I'm here for the defense of the gospel. And if God chooses to so take my life, my goal is that Christ will be honored and exalted in my life. You can't stop. It's like you can't stop Paul. You don't want him preaching in the public square. You put him in prison, and then people start getting saved in prison. He's annoying. Because every time you put a roadblock in front of this guy, he goes, oh, great, an opportunity. Now, uh, when Paul, come back to Philippians chapter 4 here. When Paul begins his counsel, he actually, this is the second time he said this. Paul gets to Philippians chapter 3 and says, uh, finally, my brothers, rejoice. And he's only halfway through the letter. So he's like, a, hey, I'm going to stop this message right now. And then he goes on for another 20 minutes. He's that kind of guy. So he writes this here in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Then he comes back to it in Philippians chapter 4 again to hit this joy issue again. Uh, Paul, if you notice in Philippians chapter 1, he's got a reason for his rejoicing, right? He's able to look at his circumstances and look at what is going on, and he's able to theologically interpret it. He's got a lens on his circumstances that help bring the priorities of life into focus. But let me be honest about this, because you're going to wrestle with this, because I know I've wrestled with this, that when you face situations that cause you uh, and your heart to choose fear, and to move toward anxiety and move toward fretting, if you have somebody come alongside you and you begin to list the thousand reasons that you have to worry, the counsel of somebody coming up next to you and saying, God's got a purpose in this time and season, is a lot of times cold counsel. Would you agree? Because we have things that we worry about that feel that they are desperately serious, right? That you and I don't worry about, gosh, what if I hit the Powerball? What am I going to do with $350 million? What if I don't, what if, gosh, what if I get a raise this week? What if I find a massive amount of success in my career ambitions? What if I drop that 15 that I gained during quarantine? Right? You and I don't have a tendency to worry about gains. Would you agree? That you and I have a tendency to worry about loss. What if I lose my job during the pandemic? What if this relationship goes sideways? What if I face loss of health this year? What if I face loss of mobility this year? What if I face loss of financial strength? What if I face dot, dot, dot? That a lot of times for us, when we, when we deal with worry and anxiety, we're always looking around the corner for it to go bad. And one, uh, one commentator said that worry is a lot like a false prophet. It keeps painting a picture void of God and his goodness. 
So there's something else that I want you to see in the book of Philippians because Paul models it for you. He says everything that's happening really is for the purpose of Christ. And you and I can feel like, gosh, my life is, does not feel like uh, the purposes of Christ are being accomplished. And you and I would look at Paul's life and go, gosh, it does not seem like the purposes of Christ and the exaltation of Christ and all of these things are happening, Paul. And what Paul does is he doesn't just leave it here with the purposes of God. What Paul does is now lead you in your heart away from worrying about these losses. Because when you read Philippians chapter 4, you, uh, would you agree that rejoice is a secondary response? You know what I mean by that? That rejoicing has to have a root, right? It's not rejoice arbitrarily. Just choose joy because the Bible recognizes our hearts as far too weak to be able to do that. Our hearts are too committed to things. They're too much involved in the center of who we are. So when Paul gets to Philippians chapter 4 and he commands rejoicing, He's also going to model that for us because Paul is recognizing that in his circumstances, he's facing loss. You with me? He's facing the very thing that you and I could deal and experience worry and anxiety and fear over, and he's experiencing it, and he's able to reinterpret it and understand it in light of the gospel. Now, turn back one chapter to Philippians chapter 3, and let me show you how Paul deals with loss. Philippians chapter 3. Paul lists his achievements in life in the first part of Philippians chapter 3. You see that? He says, I'm a Jew. I was blameless according to the law, righteous, and all of these kinds of things. And there's a hinge in Philippians chapter 3 at verse 7. And it's the word but. And Paul looks at all the achievement, all the good things in, the, in his life that he experienced before Christ. 3 verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as what? Loss. I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. God, I'm in this situation experiencing loss. I'm experiencing loss of reputation. I'm experiencing loss of personal freedom. I'm experiencing uh, loss of health. I'm experiencing, think about Paul's missionary journeys. He spends a night and the day shipwrecked. He's been stoned. He's been in fear of his life and on the run. He's let down out, the, out of a wall of the city in a basket. He's in danger on the road. And he gets to this point, which is his resume in his life, that Paul had a professional Jewish, um, what do you call it, vocation. At the top of his game. And he says now, I count them as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, this is why the counsel of like God's in control and he's doing something bigger than you and there, you just got to look at life differently is ultimately counseled. Listen, counsel is, that counsel is important, but it's insufficient. It must be paired with Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. 
Because when you and I face loss, and we face fear and worry over loss, you and I need to come not so much to God's sovereignty, but you and I need to come to God's goodness. Now, are they together? Yeah, they're together. I'm not pulling them apart. Philippians chapter 1 is as true as Philippians chapter 3, but Paul understands his circumstances in light of the greatest gain he has ever known in his entire life. I count them as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of how many things? All things. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Paul has been, you can't, not only can you not slow this guy down, but you can't take his treasure away. Because every circumstance in his life is an opportunity to grow in his relationship with Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God sovereignly orchestrates circumstances so that you and him might grow closer together? Now, Philippians chapter 4. I'm one word into our three verses here this morning. You with me so far? Okay, you hanging with me. Rejoice. Now, rejoice is a secondary response of our hearts. It's the way that we are supposed to lead our hearts. But not we don't lead them. We don't step into rejoicing without a reason. And the reason is the next two words. You leave these two words out of this verse, and all we have is a great self-help book where you're just going to choose to be happy. It's the same thing that we saw in Psalm 131. Rejoice in the Lord. What did Paul just call Jesus? My Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, you know, the way that you are going to handle worry um, is going to come as a result of you knowing Jesus. Hey, how are you going to rejoice in the Lord if you don't know the Lord? You with me? How are you going to do that? How are you going to rejoice in the Lord if you are not growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ like Peter tells us to? How are you going to rejoice in the Lord when your Bible is closed? Let me ask it's, it's 2021. We all started the Bible. Anybody start the Bible reading plan this year? You're slogging through First Chronicles, wondering why is this book in the Bible? You're in Genesis, which is okay. Then you hit Exodus. You go, okay, a fun story. I've seen the movie. You hit Leviticus. You go, oh, man, it's where all good reading plans go to die. But how are you going to see? This is one of the things. Rejoicing in the Lord assumes something very, very important. It assumes that you know who God is. It assumes you know about Jesus. 
that you are growing in your knowledge of who he is and what he is like and his grace and his mercy and his sovereignty and his goodness and his control and his forgiveness of sins and his patience and kindness that Paul says in Romans is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. See, a Christian can't handle worry with understanding. A Christian can't handle worry with perspective. A Christian has to handle worry with truth. For me to tell you to rejoice in the Lord and you have no idea who he is is useless, right? Because now I've got to back up and I've got to tell you who Jesus is. I gotta tell you how good he is. I gotta tell you how kind he is. I gotta talk to you about how sovereign he is, about how he can forgive sins. I gotta talk to you about uh, his power over demons and sickness and death. And I've got to build for you a theology. Because if it's one thing that will take your legs out from under you is you and I facing seasons and the temptations to worry and being ignorant about who God is because you will have no leg to stand on. That's why, if, listen, if you're not worrying, this is the preparation for the time. when you, This is why I teach verse by verse through the scriptures. This is why when we disciple people in our church, we take them to the word of God, because the most important thing that I can say is not a funny joke or use the milky time illustration like I did last week, which was a huge hit. Everybody loved that. That was one of my like, high points in preaching. my goal is taking your heart to the word of God that you and God might meet, might come together, that you might know more of who he is day to day, month to month, week to week, year to year. Because you are not building your life on perspective. You're building it on the word of God. That when we open this book, we believe that God speaks to you. And that you and him can come together and face to face and meet and understand his goodness and grace and kindness and truth. That you got to have a time when you're reading the Bible, when you get alone with you and the word of God. And you just don't read it and go, God, I don't know what happened. It's bedtime where you gotta take the word of God and you gotta come to passages in the scripture that talk about the, you know, the truth of, of who God is, right? And you've gotta take a hold of that truth and you've gotta tell your heart, rejoice in the truth of who God says he is. Rejoice that this God that we worship is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Amen? And you've got, listen, a quiet time isn't really a good illustration. It should be a loud time. It should be a time where you are taking hold of truth and, and, and working it. Like you ever see a, 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 somebody make bread and they're taking the bread and they knead it over and they smash it and they're pushing it. That's what you're doing to your heart in, when you read the word of God. You're taking your heart and folding it over with the truth of God's word so that it would get into you, and that when you face temptations and seasons of worry, what should come out of your mouth and out of your heart are truths about who God is. Listen, you can list a lot of details about the things that you can worry about, but do you come back and begin to build the battle back towards your worries with, no, God is kind, and God is gracious, and God is sovereign, and God is loving. 
And I've got verses that pop to mind in the midst of worry where I remember who God is and his character. See, did you see why this is spring training? You see why this is working your offhand muscles and theology to know who this God is that we worship? Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Why? Because you've got a temptation and I've got a temptation to stop. You get through that worryful season and you put your trust in the Lord and it doesn't go as bad as you think it does and God works something beautiful out of it and then you go, oh no, there's another one coming. And Paul's got to take your heart and you go, this is the default response that I want worked into your heart, Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Because let's be honest, when we face good seasons and bad seasons, we've got a temptation to rejoice in the good and struggle in the bad. Rejoice in the good, struggle in the bad, right? That's all of our hearts. We all do that. And Paul says, keep coming back, not rejoicing in good seasons and in bad seasons. Paul says, continue to rejoice in the Lord always. And what I love about this is, do you, Hebrew says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When can I rejoice in the goodness and truth of Jesus Christ? Yesterday. But it went bad yesterday. He's still the same. Today, oh, it's going good today. He's still the same. Tomorrow, it might go bad tomorrow, Steve. Well, Jesus is still the same. Always. You've always, with the truth of God, you've always got a reason to be able to rejoice in who God is and what he has done. Always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. All right, that's a pretty good command, right? You with it? You with me? That's the command that Paul gives for our heart. Lead your hearts this way. Rejoice in who God is, regardless of circumstances, imprisonment, persecutions, people misunderstanding me, loss of reputation, vocation, loss of financial strength. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now, what should it look like? Do we just all march into church, grin stuff? <laughs> is that what we look like? All grinning like idiots walking into church together? I mean, maybe. But Paul now moves to some sort of communication. There's some sort of pathos that should characterize men and women who follow Jesus, men and women who are rejoicing. What should that look like? And I love that the outcome of Philippians 4, is, Philippians 4, 4, is Philippians 4, verse 5. Look at what he says in verse 5. Here's what this should communicate. All right, Steve, I'm leading my heart. I'm rejoicing in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now what? Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Do you know when somebody who's close to you is worrying? Be honest. You know. Hey, guess what? We know when you're worrying. You type A folks out there, you're not type A, you're just worried. Speaking as a recovering type A, you're terrified of failing. We all see it. It's okay. And Paul says, let your reason, this is an interesting word. It's very hard to capture the theme of this word. It feels weird. I'm gonna, this is from um, John MacArthur's commentary on Philippians. Here's what he says about this. Uh, 
sweet, here's the way this word reasonableness has been translated. Sweet reasonableness, generosity, goodwill, friendliness, magnanim, magnanimity, charity, uh, charity toward the faults of others, mercy toward the failures of others, indulgence of the failures of others, leniency, big-heartedness, moderation, forbearance, and gentleness are some of the attempts to capture the rich meaning of this word. Reasonableness is translated uh, as gentleness in a lot of places. It characterizes the wisdom of God in James 3. The wisdom of God is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. It characterizes the quality of, of men who are in the position of elder, First uh, Timothy 3 says they're not violent, but gentle. It characterizes all of Christians in the book of Titus. Titus says this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. Even Paul says when he uh, counsels the Corinthians, he says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So what does a rejoicing heart look like? You ever notice when, when you worry that you get a bit irrational, that you've got an answer for every piece of counsel that comes your way, that you've got a, a way of going, having somebody going, yeah, but we should consider the truths of God. You go, yeah, but it might all go bad. Yeah, but this might still happen. And that is you volley the, ten, you know, the tennis ball. You just you hit them right back at them because your heart's irrational. It's not reasonable. Worriers and fretters are by default irrational people. We're all this, right? We, aren't our hearts when we worry all irrational? You remember the story of uh, Mary and Martha with Jesus? It's in Luke chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. Um, Martha is busy and distracted with all of this serving. And lazy Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach. And Martha, it says, comes up to the Lord uh, and says this. She went up to him and says, Lord, don't you care that my sisters left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. It's always an indicator of a worryful and anxious heart when you start bossing Jesus around. Jesus, I've got an agenda, and it's not yours. And if you would tell this lazy person that really ought to be helping me and making my priorities their priorities, if you would let her know that she is out of the will of God and you would allow her to be, start helping me, then things would be a lot better. Now, does that sound reasonable <laughs> to you? What's your reason? What's, what is made known in the heart of Mary? Well, Jesus says, you're worried and anxious about many things, but Mary's chosen the better thing, and it won't be taken from her. That it's a display of Martha's unreasonableness, her irrationality. She can't see, see what worry does. You remember, uh, maybe when you were growing up, we had crayons, you know, the Crayola crayons that came in like, you have the little package that's like, you know, Roy G. Biv, all the colors. Then you get the super package. And you have the super package that has, you know, 385 crayons in it. And it's got all the colors. It's got the, you know, it's got white, it's got eggshell white, 
It's got hint of a cloud, white. It's got, you know, all of those, like, it's got all these hues in them, right? And if you're a painter or you're an artist, you know how important all of those colors are. But here's what worry does. Worry only picks two or three crayons out of the box. And my kids do this from time to time, where I have one daughter whose favorite color is pink. Everything is pink. It's got to be pink. Every hue, every shade, as long as it's pink. And what worry does is it paints this picture of our circumstances that ignore a vast amount of other colors. And it demands that it's, it's only yellows and greens. And we ignore the reds, the orange, the blacks, the whites. It, it limits our perspective. Would you agree with me? That our worry only paints our story in one color. And what happens when we rejoice in the Lord is you are able to move into situations with this divine, spirit-wrought, Christian flexibility. That now in relationships, you are able to be magnanimous. You're able to move above the things that would cause so many to worry. And you're able to go, I know I'm rejoicing in the Lord, we can take a loss over here because this situation is only an opportunity for me to grow in my knowledge of who Jesus is. See, we don't have to win every argument. We don't have to win every situation. Like the win was at the cross, right? We've already won. That my life is hidden with Christ and God. And what Paul says is, what, a heart that is led by joy now permeates into relationships with a reasonableness, a sweetness, a flexibility, a, a charity, a kindness, a forbearance over the faults of others to where I don't have to lay my hands on the situation and be in control. I'm able to release it and I'm able to be reasonable to go, hmm, I don't know, let's see what happens. It's so interesting to me that, that a heart that is obeying Paul's command in verse 4 results in this reasonableness that is a relational thing. See, because worry removes us from relationships, right? It distances us from people. It limits our perspective. And what a joyful heart does is it moves me toward people. It moves me graciously into relationship. Isn't that interesting? That that's a natural outcome of people who are focused on the knowledge of who God is and what he is like. That there's a tenderness and a charity among the related. Wouldn't you, don't you want that? What if our church was, was characterized by this sweet reasonableness of a faithful heart focused on joy in the Lord? Wouldn't that be awesome? I believe that's here for us. I believe that's here for you. That God can so work in your heart with knowledge of who he is, that now you're, the temperature in your relationships, I don't know, warms up or drops, or it's not as hot, it's temperate, like a 72. Now, one more thing. We've got the command, we've got the community, now we've got a comfort. This is the last part of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. If you have the NIV Bible, the NIV Bible says the Lord is is near. This is a theme that I don't have a lot of, I just don't have enough time to focus on this throughout the course of the entire scripture. The Lord is near to Joseph when he's in prison. The Lord is near to his people as they go through the desert wanderings. The Lord is, is near when he sends Moses to his people during the slavery years in the book of Exodus. 
the Lord promises to go with his people through the desert wanderings. Hebrews 13 says, be content with what you have, for he himself has said that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Go into all the earth, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in the truth. Psalm 73, said, as for me, it is good to be near God. See, this is what good theology does for you. It builds your relationship with God. God mediates his relationship with us through truth. Because we can't know God on our own. God has to open his mouth. God has to speak. And we receive the truth. Remember what John chapter 1 says? To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. A term of intimacy and endearment. And the greatest news for the worrier is that the Lord is near. You hear me? Please hear this. Please don't miss this. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. So, you see how important it is for us to be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? You understand that? you with me. If you're not worrying, that's what I want for you, is for you to be continuously taking steps of maturity in your knowledge of the Lord and who he is. But if you came in this morning and you feel like, Steve, I don't, I don't know the Lord. Steve, I, I cannot see in this situation what God is doing. I don't understand. I want to close with this from, from the book of Mark. This is a common passage. It's known uh, by a lot of people. You've probably heard it before. Turn over to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. You know, after this, uh, this is the hinge in Philippians chapter 4. The Lord is near and he moves on. The next thing he says is be anxious for nothing. So it's the proximity of the Lord that allows us to engage with our hearts when it comes to anxiety. But if you came in this morning and you feel like, Steve, I don't, I don't know. The, I don't know. There's gaps in my theology about who God is. And all of us throughout the course of our life face gaps in our understanding of God, Right? That you can, go, you can go back and mature. Christians, if you've been a Christian for more than 25 years, you can remember times where you did not know God in a certain way. And you went through something and you begin to know God. Like not just know, the, know theoretically, but you began to know, know. You know what I mean? You began to know, know who he is. This happens to the disciples in Mark chapter 4. Experienced fishermen. They get in the boat. This is Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat, just as he was. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them, sorry, in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care? that we are perishing. 
Do you ever face situations where you feel like, God, don't you care if this is going on? Don't you see the situation that is around us? Don't you see the things that we are facing that are gonna bring us to the end of ourselves? And you know that this is a common story. You know the rest of the story, right? You know what Jesus does. Look at the verse. Verse 39, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? So I want to make one point about that story. Is that your temptation to worry that you're going to face at some time in 21 is also simultaneously an invitation to meet with the one who is near. Because if it's one thing a storm does, it brings you. What do the disciples do? They came to the one who was near. And they came with all their misunderstanding, all their, God, I don't know how you're going to make this work. God, I don't know, I don't see the other side. God, this problem is too big for me. And the disciples, ignorant of who Jesus was, ignorant that Jesus can work in this situation, ignorant that Jesus is in control, brought all of that to the one who was near. And I would tell you today, you don't have to know everything about Jesus. That your temptation, your season, your storm is an invitation toward intimacy with him. To where you can bring all that ignorance and all that uncertainty and all that, oh God, you don't care. And God, I'm not sure this is going to work out for my good. And you can bring it to him. And that you will now do business with the one who is near and the one who is sovereign and the one who is good and the one who is forgiving and the one who is patient and the one who is kind. And that's all our story. Amen? So let's not waste the spring training. Let's not waste the opportunity to grow. But don't think that you can't come near in a storm to the one who loves you and the one who is sovereign and the one who is good. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the truth of your word that guides us and strengthens us and reminds us of your patience and kindness toward us, that we are people with um, perspectives that are not the perspectives of your word. And we need your truth to challenge us, to expose areas of unbelief in us, to remind us when we worry that you are good and you are near. And just like the disciples, Father, when we are uncertain, we pray that we would remember that situations and temptations to worry are also invitations toward intimacy with you. So, Father, for those who are worry and those who are anxious and those who are fretful in their hearts here this morning, I pray that they would know that they could come to you, that you don't rebuke the disciples, but you reorder their theology that your sovereignty and your goodness is on display for them and that they grow in their understanding of who you are, that you get even bigger to them as they walk with you. So I pray, Father, that would be true of us as a church, that our conception of who you are would only get bigger, our theology would grow, that we would be more joyful, more reasonable, less irrational people. 
and that the sweetness of joyful hearts would permeate this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.